Hello, this is Belinda Rhodes on Monday the 8th of February with Guardian Daily. Today, the Conservatives say they have no plans for deep cuts this year, but what's around the corner? Budgets could be looking at cuts of around 20%. This is tough stuff, and it's interesting that it contrasts with the message that we've had from the Conservatives in the last week. Sarah Palin plays to the crowd in Nashville. I am so proud to be American. Thank you. Gosh, thank you. Happy birthday, Ronald Reagan! More later from the first national gathering of Tea Party Conservatives. Also, will Birmingham International soon be able to soak up the overflow from London's overcrowded airports? Our man in Moscow may soon be homeless if the city's mayor has his way, but why is the bohemian village of Sokol scheduled for demolition? And electronic pop band Hot Chip released their fourth album today. We talked to singer Joe Goddard. For me, like coming from a kind of middle-class school in like Putney, um, the kind of expectations of a, of, a, of a teenager, to me the, the, the whole like champagne and kind of dressy side of garage seemed kind of appealing like in a funny sort of way. So we begin with news on how the Conservatives will tackle Britain's huge fiscal deficit if they come to power after the election this spring. Labour and the Conservatives have been playing cat and mouse lately over their plans for taxation and spending. But with a probable three months to go until polling day, details are beginning to emerge of some very deep cuts. I asked our chief political correspondent, Nicholas Watt, what the Tories are planning. Well, I've obviously been talking to people in the Conservative Party and what I've been told is that um, from 2011, which is the period that really matters because that's when a new government will really be able to affect change, from that period the Conservatives believe that uh, Britain's public finances are in such a parlous state that they are going to have to introduce real-term spending cuts. What that means is that spending cuts will have to be introduced below the rate of inflation. Now, that goes further than what Labour is planning. In the pre-budget report towards the end of last year, the Chancellor, Alistair Darling, he outlined outlined plans uh, for effectively a spending freeze. The Institute for Fiscal Studies said that if you're going to have a spending freeze, that's going to feel like the 1970s. So if you're going to have uh, spending cuts below the rate of inflation, well, that's going to feel even worse than the 1970s. So that's pretty grim. And have they talked about what areas in particular, where they're going to make the cuts? No, uh, the Conservatives are not getting into specifics other than to say that there are two key areas that they want to protect. That's the NHS, that will have spending rising in line with inflation. And uh, overseas aid, the Conservatives say they will meet the UN target of spending 0.7% of our gross national income on overseas aid by 2013. Those areas are protected. And what that means is that the others aren't. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies are saying under those circumstances, budgets could be looking at cuts of around 20%. This is tough stuff. And it's interesting that it contrasts with the message that we've had from the Conservatives in the last week. They had been talking a very tough game of tackling uh, the fiscal deficit. But then towards the end of last month, we had some truly dreadful economic figures showing that, yes, Britain in the final quarter of last year had come out of recession, but by the narrowest of margins, 0.1%. And if you are just scraping your way out of recession, then you mustn't turn off the tap of public spending. And so the Tories have been saying, well, for 2010, we will act with care. We won't switch off that tap. But it seems that they still believe that because of Britain having this record fiscal deficit, that uh, they do need to switch off the tap. 
but not for some time, not till 2011. And Nick, on a slightly different story, um, David Cameron is due to announce today that a Conservative government would prevent MPs in the future using the um, ancient parliamentary privilege law to evade justice. Tell me more about that. That's right. Well, four parliamentarians last week uh, were charged uh, with uh, false accounting uh, over their expenses. Uh, there's very little that we can say about that because obviously uh, proceedings are on the way down the pipeline. But what we can say is that those four parliamentarians are hoping to invoke the 1689 Bill of Rights, which says that whatever goes on in Parliament cannot be used in a court of law against parliamentarians. There's been a bit of a furore over this because this is sort of meant to protect MPs and pigs if they name somebody in the Chamber of the Lords or the Commons not facing legal action. It's not meant to stop you evading justice if there are questions over your expenses. So David Cameron is saying that if I, David Cameron, win the next general election, I will introduce a law that will ensure that this can't happen. And what's interesting about this speech is that uh, David Cameron is going to launch a very strong attack on Gordon Brown and say it is outrageous, it is disgusting, is going to be his language, that three Labour MPs are seeking uh, to hide behind this ancient uh, uh, parliamentary bill doesn't point out that there is of course a fourth parliamentarian who was charged last week that's Lord Hanningfield a Tory peer until the Tory whip was reduced uh, was taken away from him last week and Lord Hanningfield is also trying to invoke parliamentary privilege. Nicholas Watt there and you can read more on those stories at guardian.co.uk slash politics And elsewhere on the website today, your full guide to the Winter Olympics before it begins in Vancouver on Friday. That's at guardian.co.uk slash sport. We hear from the 23-year-old in charge of what he calls the world's smallest country. You can find that at guardian.co.uk slash UK news. And all the reaction to the weekend's football with James Richardson in our Football Weekly podcast at guardian.co.uk slash footballweekly. Now, the ever-colourful Sarah Palin closed a convention of patriotic grassroots Americans in Nashville this weekend, giving a rousing speech that held plenty of criticism of Barack Obama. Her appearance marked the end of Tea Party Nation, the first national convention of an anti-big government movement that is gathering pace across America. In Nashville, Ed Pilkington talked to some of the delegates. Well, if it sounds as though I'm standing in the middle of the Niagara Falls, it's because I sort of am. I'm in this most extraordinary hotel, the Gaylord Hotel, um, in the middle of Nashville, Tennessee, which is absolutely massive. It's a massive hotel, and in the centre of which it has this sort of water feature with what seems like hundreds of different fountains and a, a sort of pond with boats floating in it. And, and huge 60-foot palm trees. I've never been any, anywhere quite as actually ugly as this, or quite as kitsch, or quite in, in such bad taste. It's here that the very first national convention of the Tea Party movement is being held, where right-wingers from all over America, I've been talking to those from Arizona, Louisiana, Georgia, have descended for a a nationwide meeting to discuss how they they want to and how they're going to go about unseating Barack Obama and ending what they believe is the socialist and communist conspiracy that he is leading. I'm with Tim Peake and Cathy Boatman. 
Tim, you're wearing uh, a shirt made out of the, the Stars and Stripes. And Kathy, you have a scarf, which has similarly got the, the Stars and Stripes on it. So, obviously, you're patriots. Where do you come from? I come from Apache Junction, Arizona. Wow, that's a long way away. It's quite a ways, yes it is. And yourself, sir? I'm from Gilbert, Arizona. Okay, so this is quite a commitment to come all this way to this convention. T tell us why you're here. Very concerned for my country, and I want to bring back constitutional adherence and fiscal and personal responsibility and a limited government rather than an all-powerful government. I think you know that we broke away from an all-powerful government many, many years ago, and we want to bring back some of that common sense that founded America. And, and Tim, why do you think that common sense has, has gone? Why are you anxious about this? Apathy. Predominantly apathy. I think the majority of our, our uh, country's people have just become apathetic about things. They've been so involved in trying to make ends meet and so on that they've just kind of lost contact with our political system and what it's all about. And what are you, gonna, what are you hoping to achieve these next couple of days? While I'm here, of course, I'm wanting to learn a, a lot about how to kind of help organize this, the Tea Party movement itself. The thing that impresses me most about it is that it's not attached to a party, uh, you know, a, a, the two-party system. It's, it's basically the objective is to repopulate the GOP with... Uh, GOP being the Republican Party. Yeah, the grand old party, Republican Party, right. Uh, is to repopulate it with true conservatives, people who... The definition of a conservative is to conserve the principles found in our original constitution. And and do you think in the last few years the, the Republicans have not been true to that? I think it's been more than the last few years, but yes. Jack Smith, uh, um, you're a delegate here to the convention. Tell me where you're from. From uh, Ella J. Georgia, it's in north of Atlanta. We're the apple capital of the state of Georgia. And you have a T-shirt on that says, well, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of a teapot or a kettle rather, and it says, let's keep the pot boiling. We are teed, taxed enough already. So, I mean, that's maybe self-explanatory, but explain to us why you're wearing this T-shirt. Well, we want to let everybody know that we see that the Tea Party movement is in favor of reduced taxes and reduced spending. We want to return to a constitutional conservative government. Okay, so why are you so sort of fired up at the moment about the way the country is going? Well, because I'm afraid that my country's in jeopardy. Uh, our forefathers uh, developed and wrote a constitution that guaranteed individual rights and state rights. Uh, we are not to be controlled by a federal government. And why now, though? Well, because it's come to the forefront. Since World War II, we trusted our government. We sort of didn't keep our eye on them like we should have and we didn't watch what they were doing, and now we realize we're in a dilemma and our freedoms are being eroded. She made a big impact on this cover of her state. She can do the same for the lower 48. She's the cattle leader this country's gonna need to undo. I look forward to attending more Tea Party events in the near future. It is just so inspiring to see real people not politicos, not inside the beltway professionals 
come out and stand up and speak out for common sense conservative principles. Sarah Palin closing the Tea Party convention there, and I asked Ed Pilkington whether she gave the audience what they had come for. Very much so. I mean, she spoke very much to their hearts um, and, and said what they were hoping to hear from her, which was notably incredibly tough on national security, accusing the Obama administration of putting the country at, at grave danger by being too soft on terrorists. So she, was, she spent quite a lot of speech on national security, speaking in tougher terms than I, than I think we've heard from her before. Our president spent a year reaching out to hostile regimes, writing personal letters to dangerous dictators, and apologizing for America. And what do we have to show for that? Here's what we have to show. North Korea tested nuclear weapons and longer-range ballistic missiles. Israel, a friend and a critical ally, now question the strength of our supports. And there were some chants uh, of run, Sarah, run from the crowd as well, weren't there? So what sense did she give um, as to her future and what, what her, her plans for the future are? Well, she's still giving nothing away. And, you know, at this distance to... 2012, which is the question on everybody's mind, you wouldn't expect her to give anything away. You know, the official line that she's still using is, you don't need a title, you don't need office in order to make a difference. And that's a, a phrase that she's been using ever since she stood down as governor of Alaska. And it, it's all very well, uh, Bran Palin talking to uh, her, a sympathetic audience, but how does she, she play in, in general to the American public? Well, that, you know, that's a, if there is a, an issue of 2012, and if she does eventually run for that, um, that's obviously the big question. Can she appeal beyond this extraordinary and un, undoubtedly powerful rump of dis, disaffected and disgruntled conservatives and appeal to the key people who are the independents and the swing voters, many of whom who, who swung behind Obama in 2008, but also we know many of them are now kind of wondering whether that was the wrong thing to have done. So, you know, the question is, by being really tough on national security, by being very much in favor of government, low taxes, is that a message that could appeal to sufficient independence to, to make her a real player? And that's, you know, that, the jury's out on that. We just don't know yet. Ed Pilkington there. And coming up later in the program, a sneak preview of Hot Chip's latest album. But first, a high-speed rail link that could put Birmingham Airport within practical travelling distance of London is being considered under government plans, rail industry sources say. If it went ahead, Birmingham could soak up a significant number of passengers who might otherwise use London's airports. I asked our transport correspondent Dan Milmo how serious a threat Birmingham might be to Heathrow. Well, Birmingham International Airport hope, certainly hopes that it will make the airport more competitive because they believe they lose a lot of passengers every year to Heathrow from the Midlands area because Heathrow is deemed to have um, better access to destinations and uh, is easier to get to. A high-speed link that would go through Birmingham International Airport, they say, would hopefully um, persuade people to go fly from Birmingham rather than a, a deeply congested Heathrow which is um, notoriously a, a quite a cramped place to, to fly from. So if this went ahead, could it possibly mean that a, a third runway at Heathrow would become redundant? 
Birmingham's plans are to grow um, an extra 20 million passengers by 2030, and being part of a widely publicised high-speed rail link would certainly um, help it meet those plans perhaps quicker than than expected. Um, would it stop Heathrow going ahead, uh, a third runway going ahead? It's more likely that uh, a change in government will do that. The, the Labour government is committed to high-speed rail and also committed to a third runway. However, the Conservative Party, who are ahead of the polls and therefore perhaps you know, they are the favourites to be the next government, they're in favour of high-speed rail but not in favour of a third runway. And that would probably be the biggest benefit to Birmingham International. And if it did go ahead, uh, what's the time frame? When, we could, when could we expect to be able to reach Birmingham that quickly? Construction is due to begin in 2017. Um, the completion date is 2025. So that's um, that's in a world where um, central government is flush with cash. And that's the only issue. Is the money going to be there? Because it won't be cheap. Transport correspondent Dan Milmo there. A plan by Moscow Mayor Yuri Lushkov to demolish historic homes in the attractive city suburb of Sokol have caused outrage amongst residents who've branded him a cultural vandal. But the city has accused the village's bohemian residents of illegal building and is threatening to send in the bulldozers to destroy their rustic homes. Luke Harding reports from the village he calls home. It's another frosty morning in Sokol Artists' Village. I can hear a dog barking. There are a few birds flittering around and uh, there's a pretty distant hum of traffic from uh, the main street uh, just beyond the enormous tower block which I can see from my window. Now I'm in a slightly unusual situation. I'm the Guardian's Moscow correspondent and the log cabin where I live with my family, my wife Phoebe and our two kids Tilly and Ruskin is now at the centre of a media storm in Russia because the mayor of Moscow, Yuri Lushkov, has indicated that he wants to destroy 30 of the uh, 113 houses on this plot for reasons which I think are somewhat mysterious. Uh, This is an extremely unique uh, colony founded back in 1923 as a sort of pioneering experiment uh, in Soviet living. Uh, It was Lenin who first came up with the idea of having a sort of city garden for his new Bolshevik state. And and some of the Soviet Union's, new Soviet Union's most famous architects designed it. Uh, Our house, which we rent, was designed by the um, Soviet architect Nikolai Markovnikov, who did most of the um, houses here. And it's a sort of, it's like a kind of English house, really. It's a sort of log cabin with a small scrubby garden at the back, currently covered in snow. But what's charming about this place is that even though we're right in the centre of one of the world's great metropolises, this is a kind of oasis of quiet and calm. Now, I'm just setting off to work, trudging through the snow towards my front gate. I have to say, when I read Commerçant newspaper, so one of the big newspapers here in Russia, and discovered that the place where I live was uh, scheduled for demolition, I I had had what might be called a kind of Arthur Dent moment. It was just uh, like discovering the Earth was going to be blown up by a Vogon spaceship. What's interesting is that this um, decision has caused a big outcry here, and it comes um, at a time when the mayor is already demolishing a riverside suburb in a place called Rechnik, and a whole load of people there have been turfed out into the snow, and it's been it's been a major scandal. He says, of course, he's just. Uh, enforcing the law, but others, others are more sceptical. Now, what's interesting about this place is a sort of place where the old Soviet 
creative elite, if you like, have collided with the ugly reality of modern Russian capitalism. The, 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 my neighbour, uh, he looks a bit like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, is one of the original inhabitants, I think. Now, I'm just going past uh, number six. You can hear the dog barking there. But what's happened over the past 10 or 15 years is that very wealthy new Russians have bought up some of these plots and uh, demolished the, the kind of charming old wooden houses and built these somewhat monstrous bungalows. I'm with Victoria Jumirina, who's uh, lived in Sokol all of her life. Uh, uh, Victoria, wh- why do you think Mayor Lushkov wants to knock some of the houses in the, in the colony down? What, what do you think is behind this? I think that it's very simple, it's just money. Because it's the most, it's also the one of the most expensive places in the Moscow. Do you know it's central of the Moscow and it's uh, private houses. Of course, it's very expensive. And you know that uh, it was, I don't know, five, ten years ago, it was a big s- struggle, but battle with, uh, I don't know, the persons who live there and our mafia, etc. They everybody, everybody want to get this place to live there, of course. So, so the, the, the mafia didn't entirely succeed. They got some houses, didn't they? Yeah. But uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. they want just maybe in other way they want to receive it to get it. Okay, so I'm now in the uh, very unusual situation of uh, having to interview my own wife, Phoebe Taplin, who uh, writes about Moscow and its architecture and knows about so-called Artist Village. Phoebe, um, wh- why is this uh, village such an interesting place to live? And tell me a bit about its history. Well, this village is actually a unique utopian experiment. It was in the early Soviet era that several architects clubbed together to build an idealistic garden city here, miniature city. And over the years, it has been eroded by new developments. Knocking those new houses down isn't going to bring back the historic past, unfortunately. And, and what, what are we going to do if... Um, you know, if we do get demolished and have to go and live live in a tent somewhere, any any ideas? <laughs> no idea at all. That's over to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Luke Harding there in Moscow. Guardian Daily news and reports from around the world. Today sees the launch of the fourth album by British electronic pop band Hot Chip. Called One Life Stand, it's their best yet, according to the Guardian's music team. Rosie Swash asked co-singer and songwriter Joe Goddard about their garage music influence. Yeah, I was I was very, very deep into Two-Step the first time around. I think I kind of got into it more as the music became more overground. The period leading up to Wookiee having a number one with Battle and genius crew and like heartless and pay as you go all, all getting into the charts and I thought that was a, just a brilliant time when quite bizarre records and very catchy infectious records but records that sounded very different to things that had been at the top of the charts previously were getting like to number one and in the top ten I thought it was brilliant and I became really obsessed I bought tons and tons of that vinyl when I was growing up, Garage was considered to be a bit girly and almost a little bit naff, and if you were really into it, drum and bass was, was where it was. And it wasn't until much later that I actually I started going to places like One Nation and there would always be a garage room that I actually thought, oh, I really like this, but it was almost kind of seen as a cop-out to like... Yeah, there was the whole, like, handbags and champagne and the twice-as-nice kind of style of Garage. Um, and, yeah, that was always considered to be... 
Well, it's less like Rude Boy. It has less of that kind of London, Jamaican kind of spirit to it than um, the kind of harder, more MC-led, more grimy side of Garage. But for me, like coming from a kind of middle-class school in like Putney, um, the kind of expectations of a of a of a teenager in from coming from that kind of place is that you like grunge music and. Um, kind of rock music and indie music and things and to me the the, the whole like champagne and kind of like, dressy side of Garage seemed kind of appealing like in a funny sort of way like I kind of liked the idea that you know it wasn't all about the kind of aggression um, I, liked, I liked how funky it could be and how like big the bass lines and things could be and yet it's still kind of like kind of smooth and had, had amazing kind of grooves and things I really like MJ Cole productions the way they could be quite like sexy and quite cool but have this real real like amazing rhythms beneath them Joe Goddard speaking to the Guardian's Rosie Swash and you can hear more of that on our new music podcast at guardian.co.uk slash musicweekly and that's all from Guardian Daily today the producers were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm Belinda Rhodes thank you for listening (laughs) 